1: And now he brings you even closer to the movers and shakers in the world of high-echelon tournament water skiing. From the founder and creator of the Waterski Broadcasting Company comes the TWBC Podcast. And now here's your host, Tony Lightfoot.
0: All right, then. And uh, thanks a lot for tuning in to the TWBC uh, Podcast. Uh, my name is Tony Lightfoot. Glad to have you on board and uh, this episode here is a really really special one uh, for me for me personally and i'm sure uh, a special one for for a good uh, few of you fans out there who uh, who remember the uh, the glory days of tournament water skiing way back in the 70s and uh, early part of the 80s or even going a little bit beyond that because uh, my guest here for the twbc podcast this episode is uh, paul seaton how you doing, Paul? I'm doing very well, thank you, Tony. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Now, uh, so Paul, let's let's see if we can try and get uh, a little bit more of an understanding as to uh, as as to your uh, your achievements within the sport of a tournament water skiing, uh, going back to the uh, to the the transition between the 60s into the 70s and kind of give our audience a sense of uh, where you fit into all of that
2: well I started skiing when I was say 14 skied in the national junior championships uh, under 16 under 18 um, not long after that made the senior team um, my first Europeans well I, I was a Reserve in 1969, when the World Championships were in Copenhagen. Uh Uh-huh. I skied in Bagnolis, which was 71. In 71, yeah. Bogota, 73, and then uh, 75 in London, and that was the end of my career, because... I took a bit of a spill in in jump, and that ended my career.
0: Okay, and in in amongst all of that, all the way up until about 1975, you'd won a number of European titles, is that correct?
2: I did, yes. I was um, European champion overall, which was the big thing in those days. Um, 72, 74 and 75. And then I, I won some individual medals, jumping in 72, 73 I was I think I won the jump again Uh, 74 I won slalom no I didn't win the slalom I won the tricks and and the jump and the overall Uh, didn't win the slalom and then in 75 I won the overall and I think that's all
0: okay Uh, and in 1974, I mean, the European Championships took place in South Africa at that time, was it, is that correct?
2: That's correct, yes. Okay,
0: and, and actually, and you told me this little, little bit of snippet of information, you know, because uh, Around about that time, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of pressure was being put to bear upon South Africa, what with the apartheid regime and all of that kind of stuff. And a little bit of trivia is, is the last international tournament, last international competition in any sport that took place in South Africa that involved uh, official uh, competitors from outside the country, took place uh, with water skiing's European Championships in that country. Isn't that correct?
2: That is correct. Uh, well, as far as I know... Um, I was told that we were the last team from Britain to go to South Africa before the apartheid ban. Uh-huh. And uh, the event was at a place called Hardisby Port, which was near Johannesburg, not too far from Johannesburg.
0: Okay, so kind of give us a sense of what it was like to actually be a tournament skier in the ninety in in about the night the nineteen seventies, because I mean you're here at Sunset Lakes, the home of the World War Ski Championships in twenty twenty one, you know, and you know you're looking at the boats you're looking at the skiers you know and and seeing what's all what what is going on kind of give us a little bit of a sense of that by way as a comparison against against skiing which you see today
2: well the equipment has changed enormously uh, i think at towards the tail end of of my career well the wake of the boat was was large it was a bosch wasn't it well, we skied behind Bosch, and then correct craft started to um, be used in tournaments in Europe as well. Um, I suppose a, a big difference is the, the skier's equipment. Uh, my slalom ski was wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't didn't use any fins. I drilled holes in the in in didn't use any of the the foils. Rather, uh-huh. I drilled holes in my my ski, and it whistled when I went through the slalom course. My jump skis were wood until about the last two years of my career Uh so you didn't take two skis you took three or four skis in case they broke Wow Um, then we started using the composite skis uh, but I was on 66 inch skis believe it or not and uh, I jumped I think my longest jump on those 66 six inch skis actually was a world record at the time but unfortunately wayne grimditch jumped a little bit further the same weekend
0: oh wow so i mean we're talking distances on 66 inch jump skis of over 170 feet
2: are you talking feet or meters? feet well, okay.
0: Okay, we'll go. We'll, we, 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 we can convert between the two. So we're talking like distances of about fifty-two meters, fifty-two, fifty-three meters.
2: It was one seven six foot six, uh-huh. which is fifty-three eighty at the time. huh. And Grimditch held the record, the world record, at one sixty-nine. And then he jumped. I'm not so sure it wasn't in the U.S. Masters. I'm not sure what event it was, but anyway, he jumped one eighty the same weekend
0: all right then and also a a lot of there's a there's a stark amount of difference between how one would treat injuries back in those times compared to how you treat it these days i mean i would go so far as to say that if if you had the same kind of medicine that is available today to treat knee injuries and stuff like that if that was if that was available in 1975 you might have actually have been able to have prolonged your career beyond that point would that be an accurate assessment
2: I have no doubt about that. I mean, it's it's so different now. Um, yeah, the, the, the surgery I had was, is now very, very obsolete. Mm-hmm.
0: So what kind of surgery did he have in 1975 to try and uh, repair? Uh, what, what, what knee was it that blew? It,
2: it was my left knee and uh, the, the medial came away with the bone. Oh, wow. I actually only had one cruciate. And that was discovered during the operation. I'd lost a cruciate before, but didn't know it. Yeah. Um, pulled the lateral, tore the capsule. My, um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be talking about this. With, I hope the skiers aren't going to listen to this.
0: Oh, oh, <laughs> they'll, they'll listen, they'll listen, but they'll know, but they'll actually listen and be thankful for the fact that there is such surgery that can repair those, those times of ligaments, if not make them stronger after surgery.
2: Yeah, I mean they can replace ligaments. I think now, can't they? Oh yeah, and absolutely. So forth but yeah it, my my, my leg I hyperextended what actually happened was that it was a fairly glassy day and there was a grass line on the shore uh-huh. and there was, then there was a water line and I misjudged my, my landing I started to resist on the grass line rather than the water line
0: this was at Thorpe yeah
2: yeah and uh, the water line was a very similar colour colour to the, the gravel mm-hmm. so I unfortunately, and I trained there a lot, but anyway, on that particular occasion, I remember going over the ramp and thinking, um, oh, this isn't a very good jump. And no. maybe, maybe that was the distraction, but it ended up being the longest jump of the day, actually, in
0: the end. Yeah, and that, that was the practice, or was that the preliminary round for the no, 1975 that, Worlds?
2: That was the first round, and actually, in the 1975 Worlds, the jumping event was first. And they've never held it first since. So, I so
0: yeah. So I mean, so I mean, for those of you that wanted to go back into the results archive and find the results, they won't ex- they won't exactly see your name because you jumped you jumped for jump in as the first event, followed by the other events, and they, unfortunately, they won't find any record of you in the 1975 World Championship results, even though you actually went out there and skied.
2: No, they won't, because basically, from Thorpe, I went to hospital and I was there for two weeks and and uh, that was the end and and I, I thought I could come back from it but um, the, the injury was too serious surgery that was available in those days was insufficient to be able to rebuild my knee
0: all right then so beyond 1975 you uh, obviously couldn't compete at the highest level or do anything of that sort you trying to kind of transitioned into coaching and the site for your ski school for many years, ironically, was, for, was uh, the Britannia Arena at Thorpe Park. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, it, it, initially it wasn't. It was Prince's.
0: Oh, it was Prince's.
2: I, I, I coached at Prince's for several years, but the way it worked was we were early morning at Prince's and then we, we, we would go over to Thorpe in the afternoon to ski and coach. Mm-hmm. Um that was for a few years and then uh, I was offered the lease at Thorpe um, and took over the Thorpe site in 1971.
0: Mhm. In 1971. Okay. So you had no, 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 sorry. Uh, 81 a- 81, I'm 81. 10 years out. Okay, yeah. a few years out but anyway. Yeah. So 81. Uh, that would have been the year of the next World Championships to have been held at Thorpe, and the first World Championship win for a skier for whom you've been credited uh, in actually developing up to that level. A uh, one late Andy Maple.
2: absolutely. Yeah, Andy Maple was uh, he was skiing with us during the, the time we were training at, at Princes and Thorpe. Um, I remember him coming two princes james khan and i were were coaching together then and he was the first one to go out with with andy and he said paul you gotta you gotta get in the boat and see this kid and um the rest is history really he was very coachable he couldn't string many words together at the time he was very shy and that was something i understood because i suffered from the the same the same sort of personality
0: and getting over the accent differences between uh, between being just outside of london and lancashire probably uh, had to that that was an obstacle that you had to get over as well
2: well not so much i'm, I'm from yorkshire
0: oh okay yeah and so was john battleday incidentally so a lot of great skiers are uh, hailing from the northern part of england but tell us a little bit about uh, more more about uh, your, your coaching with Andy Mapple, because, I mean, he, he went on from that point onwards to be uh, universally recognized as one of the greatest long skiers of all time. And, I mean, he started with you. So, I mean, obviously, whatever you, whatever you have to say so far as explaining the coaching regimen, techniques and that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, uh, certainly has relevance.
2: I, I've always maintained you need three things. Uh, one is a good head on your shoulders. Um, the second thing is, is the right physique, and with slalom being tall is, is of course an advantage. Uh, and, and then the third thing is some talent. Um, he had oodles of talent. Uh, he didn't have the. He had the. He was tall, but he was not strong. Um, and the head was something that, that developed through time. And the hardest part coaching Andy was he would beat himself up when it wasn't right, and he didn't do it right. So we had to work on that a little bit to, to encourage him. But we had to basically develop a new technique, which, um, you know, he had no strength in his arms, but he had a beautiful position with a rigid back, a, a really rigid back that never seemed to, never seemed to buckle. And what I called it sort of controlled constant speed, and I think I shared it with you as well. Yeah. And it was more a case of um, rather than the the Lapointe style, which I would call it these days, where it was a really aggressive turn and, and hang crank on and yank and, it, you know. Yeah, that's a good description. So with with Andy, uh, basically, it was a case of a, a smooth turn, but a real strong build-up of pull through the wake. And then loads of deceleration before the turn, so that he didn't have to take a snatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, same, same again. Just take the pull gently, because he couldn't hold a that snatch, and and build the pull through the wake. All right. And uh, that that's basically uh, something that was a little bit different from what everyone was doing at the time, as as you as you've identified
0: yes and I mean he was an above average overall skier as well because I mean he tricked and he jumped as well Probably uh, you probably probably don't know too much not an, all, an awful lot of people knew that he was a free event skier, everyone saw him uh, more or less as slalom but he was a halfway decent skier, he actually won the British National Men's Overall Championship at one time
2: he struggled with tricks and he struggled with jump, jump. Um, took some spills it was a bit awkward on the jump but uh, yeah he was a good overall skier but his slalom was just in in a, in a in a different different
0: world. And I mean, describe one of the set, describe some of the sets that you took with him, because I mean, and I don't know if this was reflected upon me as well, because I did I trained with you uh, for in the early the early part of the eighties, and I vividly remember uh, going not on the Britannia Arena, but skiing behind one of those big yellow bush boats. On probably the roughest part on, on one of the bigger lakes that uh, that attaches to that whole Forp Ski facility, you didn't you you did the same thing with him to kind of toughen him up up so far as rough water is concerned.
2: Yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't stop for conditions. I mean, we tournaments in those days sometimes would be on very poor sites, open sites, lots of wind. Uh, I remember G- Grimditch winning the World Jump Championships in 1969 and the only reason he, w- he won it was because it was so rough and he knew how to ski on rough water so I carried that forwards with my own skiing actually, always training on rough water and uh, Andy was no exception, we, we, we trained in all conditions, even rain.
0: And I remember those rainy conditions myself. Tra- uh, skiing out of what was it, Saint Anne's Lake, or the? Uh, I think Saint Anne's was on the back was on the back side of the Britannia Arena. But anyway, it was it, it was it was that lake and the other one. So you 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 concentrated on making sure that we were very very round skiers, myself and Andy. I mean, you know, other... yeah.
2: And you had a style actually that was very similar to Andy's. You had nice hips forwards. You you never buckled in the in the waist uh-huh yeah, yeah compliment
0: why thank you i do appre- I do appreciate that and wh- and I mean going back to ba- going back to Andy I mean when you were commentating for ITV which is with ni- 1981 uh, you were uh, you you were commenting over Andy Mapple skin. And, as he as he got enough buoys in in both rounds, because back in the World Championships in those times, you took the score in the first round, took the score in the second round, and the World Championship was de- de- determined by a combined score. I mean, what was it, what was going through your mind when you're in when you're in the broadcast booth when you whenever you see your product out there on the water heading towards a World Championship?
2: That was a challenge because obviously I was I was the colour. The color commentator trying to uh, make sensible comments Mm -hmm. for the audience, but at the same time had a skier that was potentially going to win the world championships. Mm -hmm. Um, No, it was difficult for me, I have to say, but... uh,
0: Okay. Okay. so I mean, let, uh, so I mean, obviously Andy went off to the United States and did 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 his thing a little bit, and then you continued to coach at Thorpsky for uh, for a good few years afterwards. Uh, when did you retire from that facility and uh, and and head off to what is now your home, which I believe is Canada?
2: Correct. Yeah, Canada. Um, Ninety nine. Uh, so I ran the facility for eighteen years. Eighteen mm. years. Yeah.
0: Okay, so so eighteen years, and then and then Canada came along. And uh, what was your main reason for moving out of the United United Kingdom into Canada?
2: Um, I I would have to say that uh, I found coaching, as you know, long hours. Yeah, Um, coaching is quite hard on a person, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was beginning to feel that I wasn't. Doing the job as as well as I, I could or should. Mm-hmm. Plus, thought developed from only tournament skiers to um, the general public that would come down and book skis. So I tended to spend a little less time in the boat. I I coached the coaches, um, but I spent less time in in the boat. When a when a top competition skier came, I I obviously contributed to their their training um but i i have to say i can burn myself out actually with with the long hours i put in over those years and of course i'd done a few years before that at, uh, at princes. at princes as well yeah
0: so yeah so uh we'll we'll, we'll wrap up the uh, the podcast a little uh now uh by saying thank you for uh, for coming and, and talking to me uh you're here at the world championships uh, at Sunset Lakes and you re- and you and Margie are re- re- reunited with two good friends uh, Lilani and Jack Travers tell us a little bit about how that how that friendship got uh got struck up a little bit because you do you you do come down to Florida and visit them on a fairly frequent basis uh, uh, since since uh, moving to Canada isn't that right
2: Yeah we holiday together almost every year for two Two weeks or, or a bit more. Um, it's a good story, actually. This because um, it's it's a compliment to, to Jack and what he's achieved. In 1971, I won a Churchill Fellowship. I was awarded a Churchill Fellowship and came over to Jim McCormick's ski school in Winterhaven. Mm-hmm. Jack came down to um, on on a on a he was. Basically, responding to a, an, an ad advertisement he'd seen for Jim McCormick had an opening for an employer. Employee, wow. sorry, employee. Um, I remember Jack driving in, in in a red Mercury, whatever it was. Uh-huh. Um, Jim talking to him and Jack driving away, and Jim got then got in the boat because I was driving for him, and I said, "Oh, who was that?" and and he said, "Oh, he, it's a guy that's responding to my." My, my my advert and uh, but he's not qualified enough he's so he had told him if in a month's time stick around and if in a month's time I haven't filled the vacancy uh, I'll take you on so we all we all actually got to know Jack because he, he was in Winterhaven which is quite a small place in those days and we got to know him during that month Mm-hmm. nobody did fill the vacancy, so Jack came and worked there, and I remember the very first thing he did was build a beach, so he was up to his hips in in water and and reeds mm-hmm. uh with a scythe uh making this beach oh wow, and that's his start to to water skiing and and look what he's done i mean he to, in my mind he's the best coach in the world this site is is paradise
0: oh absolutely, absolutely. And uh,
2: I went back to Jim McCormick's the next year and by then Jack was driving and coaching and it was very clear to me he helped me enormously uh, from then till the World Championships when I hurt myself. And I I could see straight away he was just a wonderful coach and patient and had a a very sort of quiet, deliberate manner about him and he hit the right note of, of... you know you have to have balance, you have to have positives and negatives. It can't all be negative. Uh-huh. Hit the right balance, um, encouraged, motivated. and he's now, in my opinion, the best in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean he's getting on in years, as indeed I am, so, yeah. uh, but his, his two boys, particularly I think Chris, mm-hmm. has, a, has a real interest in coaching as well, and
0: is a good coach absolutely and they keep the place running and they keep it as well. one of the best facilities in the world well we'll uh, we'll leave the podcast there thank you very much paul seaton it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you now i normally uh, offer my guests the opportunity to say thanks or uh, give acknowledgments to friends family or whomever is is worthy so i'm going to give the microphone to you to uh, to say a, a shout out to to all of those good people and uh, mike is yours sir
2: Well, I think a big thanks goes to to the Travers family for for putting on what appears to be um, the makings of perhaps the best world championships ever. Um, There's no two ways about it. This is a wonderful site, and they've done a good job preparing it. Um, I think it's going to be a good weekend, and there's going to be some good skiing, but one thing I must say... I live in Canada, uh, but I'm not Canadian, and I'm here to support the Brits.
0: Excellent stuff. And uh, with that, uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave uh, the, uh, this edition of the TWBC Podcast. My name's been Tony Lightford. You've been listening to Paul Seaton. And until uh, next time, it is ciao for now.
1: Thank you for listening to the TWBC Podcast